Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Williams. Join me as we explore the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and discuss a wide range of military history topics from the American Civil War to the Korean War. During World War II, while weapons, ammunition, ships, planes, tanks, etc. were always a big focus, theater commanders also understood the value of troop morale and went to great lengths to secure things like Coca-Cola or ice cream or beer or movies or music for the troops, even in the most far-flung areas of the war. Music was a particularly satisfying treat, and military bands were a big part of this. And many of these bands played shows for troops very close to the front lines. Today, we're going to talk about one of those bands, the 746 Far East Air Force Band, and an album that they recorded in 1945. This album is going to be up for a Grammy, and today we are joined by Jason Burt, a historian and history teacher, and the man behind the effort to see these World War II veterans honored with one of music's (laughs) biggest awards. Welcome. Thank you, man. It's honored to be on. So let's get started. How did you become interested in the 746th Far East Air Force Band? Uh, I had heard stories about the 746th Far East Air Force Band ever since I was a kid. My grandpa was the uh, the lead trumpet player for the band, and he was always telling us stories about his time with the band and, and being a musician during World War II. So it, it was always something that was uh, known to me. Uh, a lot of the details weren't uh, made more clear until I got quite a bit older and more interested in history and World War II. Now, we're going to talk about the band's wartime service and the making of this incredible album. But tell us a little bit about Army bands during World War II. Did they have the same sort of training? Did they actually fight like other troops? What's the story of U.S. Army bands? So that's actually one of the things I wanted to dispel with this project is is what what actually the experience was with uh, musicians during World War II because I think and it's and I'm guilty of it as well as growing up with my grandpa is uh, you assume you assume somebody in the band is nowhere near the fighting they're just playing their instruments going from place to place and it's a relatively safe gig especially if you're stateside and so what these guys had to do they they had the same training everything they went to basic training and things like that and before they got went overseas they had overseas training for things that they wouldn't have been they would have been likely doing when they weren't practicing or playing their their instruments, stuff like being stretcher bearers and things of that nature. And if you're in a Marine band, of course, you're always a Marine first. So those guys were very much at the front with their rifles and things like that. But Army bands, if you were assigned to the Pacific or to the European theater, you were there to play for guys that were on the front line. And you would be as close to the front as, as, as a company CP playing your instrument and doing shows and things like that. One of the, I was talking with uh, Colonel Timothy Holden, he's the 10th commander of the Pershing Zone. He's retired now. And he was telling me this great story about his father, a trumpet player with uh, the AmeriCal Division. And they were on their way to Guadalcanal as Private Orville Holton of the 164th Infantry Regiment. And while they were going to Guadalcanal, they were aboard a ship and uh, an admiral came by the band while they were on the ship. And it was Admiral Bull Halsey. And so Halsey asked what unit they were. And the band spoke up and said, well, we're the band. And he said, did you bring your instruments? And the band replied, no. And Halsey said, good, you won't be needing them. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's this, you never knew what you were going to get, especially in the Pacific when uh, the Japanese, you never knew where the front line was going to end up. And stuff like that happened with uh, my grandpa's band, the 746. They were playing a show at one point. 
and fighting broke out right behind them in the middle of this show with the USO. The most glaring example of the the band being in battle would have to be the 28th Infantry Division band. Those guys were over in Europe. And while they were in the Battle of the Bulge over in Luxembourg, some fighting broke out. They were at the company CP and the Germans had this heavy push towards the 28th Infantry Division. And so they had to put down their instruments and pick up their weapons and uh, help propel this German advance. And by the time the fighting ended in the Ardennes, only 16 of the band's 60 members died. So it was not necessarily the safe uh, war experience that a lot of people would just assume band members had. Now, big band leader Glenn Miller was very involved in uh, Army Air Force bands in World War II before he tragically disappeared in 1944. He was technically too old to enlist, but obviously he wanted to serve his country and he really wanted to help modernize military band music. What do you think his impact was on these Army bands? I think some of Miller's biggest impacts on the band's the one, the one lesser note is probably that the Army had this long-standing tradition centered around marching bands and things like that coming off of World War I uh, with Sousa and things like that. And so they had this long-standing tradition. And they retained that aspect of military music for training purposes, discipline and spirit and things like that. But before Miller got into the, the war, uh, there were old-school Army officers who weren't nece- necessarily motivated uh, to modernize military music for this new generation Uh, coming through the ranks, getting ready for war. And so Miller, when he got picked up and put in charge of all this, uh, he was trying to tweak it, make it his own. He was a band leader by by nature. And so he was trying to modernize the Army Air Force band in a way that would appeal to and boost morale for the the guys who were going to be coming in, this younger generation. And uh, in 1943, uh, he was a captain at that time, and he was just appalled. They were just appalled by some of these musical adjustments that Miller was making to the traditional uh, musical things they were doing. Uh, Things like making marching arrangements out of jazz music songs and blues hits. And so at one point he gets challenged by uh, one of these old school officers about why Sousa marches were being set aside. And uh, he pretty much told this superior officer, tell me, Major, are we flying the same airplanes that we flew in World War I? And so he kind of got... He had the full support of the very higher ups, and he had this this task of making the uh, the uh, the officers that were on his level modernize. And so modernizing the band that was one of the things he was into. The other thing he did was he was just this magnet for talent. Um, everybody knew Glenn Miller; he was the big artist at the time, and he joined the Army Air Force. And so he brought along a lot of talent with him, and uh, guys who were being drafted, musicians who were professionals being drafted, uh, and otherwise going to uh, basic training and things like that. They were going to go off to war. He ends up pulling them and starts forming all these bands. And the, the Army Air Force bands from the top to the bottom were just filled with talent. Back to the 746th. Tell us about their wartime service. The 746th, they were formed uh, on the Pacific Coast. Uh, my grandpa ended up joining them uh, voluntarily. I call, he was at March Field, which had a lot of uh, big band and Hollywood recording artists, musicians down there that he was learning from for about a year. And a call came down there to uh, get a trumpet man with a sergeant's rating. My grandpa was just a PFC at the time. And uh, his story goes that all of the sergeants that played trumpet were married. And so he went to the commanding officer, kind of volunteered to go in place of these guys that were married so they didn't have to go overseas. And so that's how he ends up joining the band. And the band starts off doing some of that uh, specialized overseas training I was talking about earlier. And uh, they make their way up the California coast and head out to the Pacific destination unknown. 
And it's about a 28 day voyage for them. They had some submarine scares and they had some airplane scares from Japanese that were, it was a new experience for them, but they got to Leyte and were part of the Leyte campaign. And that's when they were really more of a frontline band unit when the Leyte battle of Leyte was going on and the uh, army was retaking Leyte from the Japanese. And so uh, they didn't practice as a military band before leaving. And that's just how that just speaks to the talent of these guys. They didn't play together before they went over there and they started doing these shows. And uh, about the third show in, uh, after arriving on Leyte, uh, they're performing with a USO group and fighting breaks out just behind them with machine gun fire and things like that. And so they saw a lot of stuff on Leyte. And then when they moved over to Manila, that's when they were designated a headquarters band for the Far East Air Force. And they were pretty much uh, on base with General Kenny and doing things more like a headquarters band would be doing. So part of their role, obviously, was to perform during ceremonies your grandfather, before they go overseas, has a very significant role in the funeral for William Dias, one of the great war heroes of the Pacific War. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, so that's one of the the stories my grandpa had when I interviewed him later on. And uh, that's not something he mentioned to us growing up or anything like that. I'm not quite sure why he didn't tell us that or why he didn't uh, talk about it on that oral history track that he made in the 80s that's on the album. But uh, I was interviewing him back in 2010, I want to say it was. And so we were chatting and the, the topic of taps came up and, and how important that was for a trumpet player. And he starts talking about uh, his most difficult experiences and his first experience. And his first experience was actually with William uh, Dias. And so he was at March Field at the time. He just gotten to Southern California in December. And December is the month that Dias actually dies. And so he just gets to Southern California. The trumpet players, he was telling me, would just rotate. Uh, they didn't have, a, it was whoever's turn it was, that's who was going to be playing taps. Didn't matter uh, how high up the uh, the ranks the person was who died or anything like that, if they were famous or anything. And so it just happened to be my grandpa's turn. And uh, he gets this honor of playing taps for somebody who did so much in the in the Pacific. He's just so well known for the Philippines. Uh and for being a POW and, and breaking out of uh, the prison over there in Davo. And so he has his honor of playing for Dias, and, and he always considered that one of the biggest honors of his life was playing taps for, for everyone. But that first one was really special to him because of who William Dias was and, and uh, what he accomplished as a military person. I bet that that had to have been just an incredible honor for him. Now, the band also has a connection to the Angels of Bataan, the nurses who are captured in the Philippines in 1942 and then liberated in early February 1945. Tell us about this connection. Yeah, it's, you know, my grandpa, it's, it's interesting. His connection started before he was with the band, started with Dias, who's a Philippines guy, and it ended with the Angels of Bataan. And so the band is over there uh, on Leyte at the time when the nurses are flown over uh, after their POW experience and they have this uh, ceremony for them when they get their, uh, their bronze stars and they're all promoted uh, up a, a rank. And so uh, the band gets to play for them. My grandpa gets to have this ceremony. It's the only military formation ceremony that they played the entire war was for the angels of baton. So uh, it was really memorable for them. My grandpa remembers it being suffocatingly hot uh, on the oral history track. You can kind of tell, see, he gets his dates a little mi- mixed up of where the band is at the time. I think he's 60-something by the time he makes the 
the album recording. He thinks they're in, uh, at, he thinks the war is over at the time, but they're, they're actually on Leyte at the time playing for these nurses. So he, he'd always considered that a big honor too, was being able to play for some of the more uh, well-known people that came out of the, the Philippines, uh, like Dias or like the Angels of Bataan. He always thought that was such a great experience for him to be able and honored to play for people who had been through so much and done so much. Did the band ever play for General MacArthur or at any of the other ceremonies marking the liberation of the Philippines? Uh, you know, he. I've asked him if he played for MacArthur and he didn't, didn't know. He said it's possible that MacArthur came at some point, that the band was usually focused while they were on stage and weren't usually checking out the crowd. That's when you kind of get starstruck when people like that show up in the crowd. And so it, it's possible. I'll, I'll ch- I have to go through his journals a little more to find out more on that. I know he played for General Kenny on the, the base over there at Fort McKinley. The, the biggest thing that they did, uh, it wasn't for the liberation of the Philippines. Uh, when the war ended for uh, VJ Day, and they had just gotten word that uh, the Japanese had signed the surrender, uh, General Kenny had ordered uh, my grandpa to go set foot outside of uh, Fort McKinley. And there's an American cemetery there, or an allied cemetery, just filled it's just filled with uh people who had died during the war and it's the it's actually the biggest one it's the biggest world war ii one as of today so there's it's just a huge cemetery over there in manila and general kenny orders my grandpa to go over there and blow taps for the last time to sound the end of the war for all those who didn't make it home and so uh it's just another great honor my grandpa had with all these uh, wartime experiences wow when did the band record the songs that now make up Sentimental Journey, the album that you've released? So they recorded these in 1945. They were at Fort McKinley. There was a special services unit made up of two guys that had come through uh, Fort McKinley, and they were doing other things, I think my grandpa says. And so they had a wire recorder, and they asked if they could use it. And they said, yeah. And so it's it's kind of unusual for people who aren't the Glenn Miller types to have access to recording material, particularly out in the Pacific or, or out where fighting was going on. And so they set up this wire recorder. The microphone was on the, the tent pole inside their uh, performance tent. And the wire recorder ran across the compound to uh, another tent where the guys were operating that. And so uh, they set up a... Uh, a recording session and, and recorded these 10 popular big band songs. And this, so this would have been 1945, just after the war ended. And it was done. All the arrangements were done by band members. They were all super talented guys. Uh, my grandpa's buddy, Joe Molasso was responsible for the majority of the arrangements on there. And uh, it's, it's incredible that the, the thing even exists, uh, particularly just that it got recorded for one thing, but for uh, my grandpa to uh, have, had the foresight to ask the CEO, Hey, can I have this and to bring it home and to uh, keep it safe for 75 years? It's it's amazing. This thing even exists. How did you find the record? We grew up knowing about the band my whole life. My grandpa talked about his musical experiences pretty regularly. Uh, In the eighties, when he made that narration track on the album, uh, he had also recorded on tape from the, the records uh, two of the songs where he was the featured soloist. This is Moonlight in Vermont and Harry James Trumpet Rhapsody. And so he pulled those two songs as kind of like this uh, keepsake for his kids to hear the oral history and to have 
uh, some songs where he was the the soloist as a trumpet player. And so we had all this, we had those, and then he put them away in the eighties. And I think they just kind of faded from memory where they were. He didn't get them out regularly or anything like that. And so they were up in his attic, but nobody really knew where they were. And so uh, the album, I didn't really, I was somebody who having a grandpa as a trumpet player who, who went to Juilliard and things like that. Uh, as a kid, I mean, we were a musical family, but as a kid, I was the, the jock in the family. And so I was never really forced to listen to an instrument. So growing up that way, hearing my grandpa practice daily down the hall, I mean, that was, I assumed everybody's grandpa sounded like that. And so I didn't really appreciate or listen to uh, my grandpa, like really, really listen until I was much older and got into uh, World War II history. And he made me a copy of uh, he, that tape he made in the 80s. Uh, he put it on CD. And uh, I took it out to my car one day and went for a drive and heard him play and actually listened to him for the first time. And it was it was an incredible experience. And so we came across these albums um, after he died in 2016. My grandma died in 2019. And so we were clearing out their house after my grandma died. And uh, we came across them in the attic and uh, I just kind of sat on them for a while. It was kind of sad. It was the end of an era. It was my Both my grandparents had died. And so... Uh, in the spring of 2020, uh, COVID was here. We were stuck indoors. I wasn't teaching at the time very much because of COVID. And so uh, I had some time alone. I put them on a record player to see if they even worked. And uh, it was like my own private concert with grandpa getting to hear all these songs I'd never heard before. It was pretty amazing experience. Wow. That is incredible. Now, what gave you the interest in turning this record into something that people could find on iTunes or Spotify? What made you decide to release it as an album today? And what was that process? Uh, The idea came about when I was having that uh, listen to the album for the first time, laying the records to see if they even worked. Uh, By the end of it, I kind of had this idea built up of what I wanted to do. And it was pretty much centered around uh, my grandpa who went to Juilliard and he got his master's degree at Drake University. And he started off uh, with the Des Moines Symphony Orchestra and going into professional musicianship. And uh, he came to this crossroads early on in professional musicianship where he could go the route of being a professional musician and put in the long hours daily, or he could uh, be more of a family man and, and uh, be with his uh, newborn son. And so he chose to be a family man and he moved out to California and became a music teacher. And so he never really got that professional music experience. So I wanted to give that to him. I was some of, I told you I was a jock growing up. I was, I'm the, the only one in the family doesn't really play anything. And so musically I was never going to uh, do anything for him. I couldn't play the trumpet or anything like that, but this was something in my wheelhouse that I could do. And so it kind of turned into uh, how rare is this item? And I started emailing people and doing some research and nobody ever really heard of anything like that before. Then it started turning into, well, what, what else could we do? And all these other things. I mean, my grandpa left, I feel like my grandpa groomed me for this job my whole life, uh, telling me all these stories and putting this oral history together. And the album even comes with nine minutes of footage from the, the band out in the, the Pacific playing their, their instruments. And so uh, it kind of turned into just making this professional uh, music experience for my grandpa and his bandmates, because most of them weren't professional musicians afterward, but musician playing, playing their instruments and things like that and and making people happy. That was something they had their whole lives, but they didn't have that professional musician experience. And I wanted to give that to them. 
Can we listen to a couple of clips? Absolutely. Would you like to introduce the first one? Yeah, so the first one is uh, Moonlight in Vermont. That, that trumpet solo, that's, so that's one of the songs he put on tape in, in the 80s for us to hear. That trumpet solo is my grandpa, uh, Corporal Richard Burt. And so that's the one. He put that on a CD for me when I was about 20 years old and I went for a drive. And that is the, that solo that you hear right there. That's the point where I tell people, you know, that's the first time I really actually heard my grandpa play his trumpet, like was actually listening. And I had to pull over the car and listen to the rest because it was so, to hear him at 20 years old with such young lungs. Uh, it was just an incredible experience for me. I bet. The next clip, do you want to introduce that one? Yeah, the next clip is called East of the Sun, West of the Moon. I think it's great music. I've really enjoyed listening to the album. Thank you. I, I love it too. It's, it's, there's something about the, you know, I was worried when I first got it back from the sound engineers. Cause I thought, you know, modern technology, they pull, they'll pull all those scratchy sounds out. Uh, I guess it's not so modern that they do all of that, but I, I kind of like the, the vinyl sounds and it, it makes you, it almost puts you back in 1945 sitting there listening to them in a tent at Fort McKinley. It's I, I love it. And I'm sure that all the troops that got to hear them play, especially in places like the Philippines, were just very moved by that. I mean, we know from so many oral histories that, you know, while it was great to have some Coca-Cola or great to have a beer or great to watch a movie, I think a lot of people's oral histories really show that music was one of those things that really reconnected them back to their idea of their homes. Absolutely. There's been... I've spoken to a few World War II veterans that we still have around and that have heard the album. They, they just love it. It makes them feel like they were 19, 20 years old and it reminds them of home and it reminds them of their, their friends they were in battle with and things like that. And it's, it's just a great piece of history. So what's next and how can people help support the Grammy campaign? Our next step is actually putting in, uh, so the application window for best historical album and all the other Grammy genres uh, comes, it's a month long window from the end of June to the end of July. And then we'll get the first round of, of 
voting going on. But the, the biggest way people can help support what we're trying to do and get these World War II veterans uh, a Grammy for their historic recording is uh, listen to the band on Spotify as much as you can or on any other streaming device. If you do Apple Music, it's on all of them, Pandora. If you're on Spotify, follow the artist page, all those kind of things help us convince other voters that, hey, these guys are getting a lot of attention and, and it's a really historic album. So any support like that, listening to the album, you can, if you really want to buy the album, it's available digitally right now. It's going to be out on CD pretty soon. We've got some great liner note contributors from different historians and, and things like that. So the album is going to be actually really cool to own as a physical copy as well. But if you like digital stuff, you can go to the band website and it comes with the album and some video footage of the band practicing their instruments in the Philippines and, and having some jocularity with each other at the same time. So uh, any of those ways will help support the project and get us a little closer to trying to get a Grammy award for these World War II veterans. And this would be a 2020 or a 2021 Grammy. I'm always confused so how they do the would, years. Yeah. So the, we would, the nominations would be later this year. The actual ceremony would be in 2022, but I feel like they call it the 2021. Okay. Okay. Very good. Pretty sure that's how they do it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm always confused. Well, Jason, thanks so much for joining us today and for all your efforts to honor your grandfather's service during World War II and your efforts to honor the World War II generation. Good luck with the Grammy campaign, and we'll look forward to hearing from you in the future about how that's going. Awesome. Thanks so much, Amanda. It's been a pleasure being on with you. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.